everyone, and welcome to the first episode of First Do No Harm, the premier medical ethics podcast that discusses various ethical issues commonly encountered in clinical medicine. You'll be hearing from me, Karishma Popley, one of your hosts, as well as four other current medical students, as we interview healthcare providers in various fields to share ethical dilemmas they have encountered in practice, as well as teach us about bioethics principles that they have used in dealing with these ethically difficult encounters. I will hand it off now to Ben Bowlby, who will be leading our first episode on the main principles of medical ethics. We're joined today by Dr. Levinson. He is a psychiatrist and professor of medicine and psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. He's also the chair of consultation liaison psychiatry at VCU Hospital and the founder and chair of the VCU Hospital Medical Ethics Committee. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Levinson. You're very welcome. We'd like to start by talking a little bit about the structure and function of an ethics committee within a hospital and what their role is in the healthcare system. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, while there's some variation between hospitals, um, ethics, committee to ethics committees typically are interdisciplinary advisory groups that help providers, uh, physicians, nurses, and other providers, as well as patients and families, uh, resolve ethical dilemmas. Um, they also help set um, hospital policy in speaking to the ethical aspects of, of those policies. And to varying degrees, they're also involved in education. Um, at a place like VCU, of course, we're involved in educating uh, health profession trainees, uh, but uh, in most places, ethics committees are also involved in providing education uh, to practicing healthcare providers. Thank you. What does an ethics committee look like, or what does an um, ethics committee meeting look like? Sure. So um, a, a typical meeting would be one in which we had been contacted ahead of time with a difficult um, ethical clinical problem, and we would invite uh, the person who brought up the question, as well as anyone else who was involved in the care of the patient who wanted to participate, to come meet with the committee. Uh, one of the providers would describe the case and the question. The committee would then ask more questions to uh, develop a, a fuller understanding of the situation. Um, we would then have a usually pretty lively discussion. Uh, typically, if it appeared that we were all in agreement pretty quickly, usually one of us would spontaneously take a devil's advocate position to make sure we had fully explored the, the issue. Um, Ethics, committee do not, ethics committees do not function like courts. We don't determine what the right answer is. Our role is to help the providers come to their own decision by helping them both see what the options are and what the ethical principles are uh, that uh, can hopefully guide them. Um, we are, for the most part, then advisory. Um, at, at VCU, the rule is that anyone connected to a case can ask for our input. So that could be a doctor, a nurse, a student. Uh, it could be the patient or the patient's family. It surprises me that um, it's pretty rare for patients or families to request it, but uh, I think they may not know it's an option. And um, um, the only kind of person or entity we would not accept a, a referral from would be, uh, let's say, an outside organization that wanted to discuss a patient, um, uh, like an advocacy group. We, we, we certainly are willing to meet with an advocacy group to discuss an issue. Uh, at their request, for example, we've met with leaders from the Jehovah's Witnesses faith a, a couple of times over the years. 
Uh, but if they wanted to discuss one of their members who was in the hospital, um, we, we would not normally accept that request. How, how often is it that the physician or team that asked for the ethics committee disagree with the final decision, decision? And I guess what responsibility does the team have now that they've asked for the ethics committee input? Do they have that? Do, do they have to incorporate that reason of thinking into their um, final decision? -making? I, I can't think of a case where the ethics committee thought there was a clear right answer and the team uh, disavowed it. Uh, now there are times when, um, let's say two different attending physicians, both involved with the same patient, do not agree with each other. Um, and uh, the committee doesn't tell, say, uh, Dr. A is right and Dr. B is wrong because uh, if, if two attending physicians fully informed are still in disagreement, it means that there isn't a clear right answer. And, um, and so again, our, our responsibility is to help them understand what, what the ethical basis is for trying to figure it out. But there are times when there's just not a clear right answer. Dr. Levinson, how quickly do these decisions get made? Is there some sort of uh, sense of urgency or, or can the ethics committee take, you know, one or two days to make the decision? What, what's the typical time course that it happens? The, the committee rarely could deliver an emergent or very urgent response. Um, the members of the committee are all volunteers. They all have full-time jobs. Um, so we, we can't assemble you know, 10 people uh, quickly under most circumstances. So um, most, most cases that are referred to us um, are not presented to the whole committee, partly because an answer may be needed more quickly, but also because the, the answer is clear enough that a meeting of the whole committee is not necessary. And in many cases, um, well, there are two, two kinds of things that really don't need to go to the committee. There, there are cases where the, the caller really knows what the right answer is. They just want the blessing of somebody else. Um, and they want a note from me in the chart. They're worried about being sued, for example, and it makes them more comfortable. Or risk management would be more comfortable if there were a note in the chart. There are other times where the issue, the conflict, let's say a doctor-nurse conflict over what's the right thing to do, will evaporate if the doctors and nurses will communicate more effectively with each other. People are busy in healthcare, especially in critically ill patients, and communication is sometimes not optimal. And so sometimes my role is just to be a matchmaker to get them together to talk it through. Um, so the cases we take to the whole committee are either those that are more difficult um, or where the caller requests a hearing by the whole committee. Uh, we had one of those recently where I thought the answer was pretty clear um, and they were pretty comfortable with the answer, but they still wanted a, a discussion with the whole committee, which turned out to be a, a, a good process. Um, and then there are times when the issue is not specific to a particular patient, where it's really more of a general, how should we practice issue. And, and then um, that, that's something that uh, wouldn't typically be urgent. What we have done when there was greater urgency, because the committee at most meets a couple times a month, is a small subset of the committee has met with the primary providers um, on, on the unit or in the outpatient clinic um, where, the, where the case occurs and, and, and discuss things then. And, and that sort of leads to my next question. Um, so what kind of uh, healthcare providers or what kind of people are on an ethics committee? Is it just healthcare providers or the members from the community? Yeah, again, it varies from hospital to hospital. Um, most committees 
are interdisciplinary. Uh, ours contains uh, physicians, nurses, a social worker, chaplain, an administrator. Um, we have a couple of lawyers on our committee, but they're not the hospital's lawyers uh, because we would see that as a conflict of interest. Um, the hospital's lawyers are supposed to advise the hospital regarding whatever, whatever is in the hospital's legal best interests. Um, we don't want to be legally naive as a committee, um, but our role is not to, to minimize lawsuit. It's to try and maximize uh, the best ethical response. Um, some committees have um, what they call community representatives. Um, I'm not, we've not done that here for a couple of reasons. A lot of times that has seemed to me, when I've looked at other places, it, it seemed to me that um, the person was not truly a representative of the patient population. For example, somebody from the board of the hospital. Um, a hospital like this one, our patient population is very diverse. What one person could represent uh, all of the uh, diverse populations we serve. And finally, there's a HIPAA problem. Um, if we're discussing protected healthcare information, which we are whenever we're talking about an individual case, we're not really legally allowed to do that in front of somebody who's not a healthcare professional here. So do you seek out these members that make up such a diverse group to serve on the Hospital Ethics Committee, or have they volunteered themselves to work with the committee? And do you purposely try to include nurses, social workers, physicians, and other members of the healthcare team? Some of both. Um, many years ago when we formed the committee, um, I said that uh, one of the prime criteria to serve was that you you couldn't have the time to serve. And what I meant by that was, I didn't want people who were bored and thought it would be interesting to sit around and talk about cases. I wanted people who were busy and respected within their, within their roles. Um, and um, so that's, that's certainly one characteristic. Um, people need to be respectful of other people's opinions not too narcissistic or obsessional, not too invested in their own, their own view, um, but also willing to take a stand. Thank you. Um, and then before we move on and discuss the principles, the sort of the foundational principles of medical ethics, if a listener wanted to get involved in an ethics committee, whether at VCU or perhaps you know, at another hospital, what sort of steps would you recommend um, to get involved? Yes, well, the first thing would be to educate yourself, do some ethical reading. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I do when a healthcare professional approaches me and says, can I be on the ethics committee? Uh, I say, well, why don't you first um, find a case and bring it to the committee? Um, and that, that frankly screens out a lot of people uh, because if, if you're not even willing to take the effort to find a case or an issue, um, then, then I don't think you're ready to be on the committee. And, and it's not that hard to find a, an issue. Um, as, as you'll see when we discuss the principles, um, ethical dilemmas uh, that are most visible are often um, very dramatic uh, or highly specialized or very complex cases, but there are ethical issues underfoot every day in routine practice. Um, Dr. Levinson, um, we've talked about how uh, the ethics committee is interdisciplinary, and I was curious um, if you've noticed if certain professional groups in healthcare tend to emphasize certain values um, when they're voicing their opinions. Um, it was just something that I was curious about. Well, I think that, um, and, and you know, this is a generalization. So like all generalizations about groups of people, at the level of individuals, this wouldn't necessarily be true. But um, I would say that 
um, that nurses, um, particularly in critically ill patients uh, with poor prognoses, are are more maybe more likely to express concern about the treatment plan being a full court press, let's keep doing everything we can to keep this person alive. And, and physicians may tend more to be oriented toward erring on the side of keeping the patient alive. Um, and the more connection, personal connection to the patient the physician has, the more he or she may have a hard time letting go. Uh, a surgeon who has operated on the patient and the patient has had devastating complications of the surgery. Uh, an oncologist who's followed the patient for years, carrying the patient through many forms of treatment for their cancer. You can understand how uh, at a personal level, a, a, a physician having worked so hard to try to keep the patient alive, might have a hard time letting go. Uh, the nurses who are with those patients 24-7 um, are more sensitive, sensitized to the patient's suffering, but at the same time, they may be too sensitive to the patient's suffering. So that, that would be one, one, one difference I've seen. Um, now, of course, we screen out people who are very dogmatic. Um, we wouldn't have somebody on our committee who um, was a hardcore right to life person um, who couldn't accept that there were other points of view that were legitimate. And we wouldn't have somebody who um, thought that right-to-life positions were utterly ridiculous and should never be discussed. So we, we don't have extremists on the committee, but, but that wouldn't vary by discipline in my experience. There are extremists out there in every discipline. Have you incorporated underrepresented voices on the committee as well, or noticed that a gap exists? And how have you acknowledged or addressed those concerns when leading the Ethics Committee? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest concern there is that the makeup of healthcare professionals does not reflect the patient population. So, um, um, you know, low socioeconomic status and people of color are underrepresented among healthcare professionals. And um, we try to deal with that by being very cognizant of it and compensating for it um, and to empathize with, for example, why African-Americans and the why black people in the Richmond community uh, might be, um, have a hard time trusting what doctors tell them at MCV because of, of the history of the institution. Um, before we move on to the principles, does anyone have any final questions? So that was a great lead into sort of the principles because what you just mentioned, I think, um, really covers all of them. Um, would you mind for our viewers just sort of defining each of the four sort of pillars of medical ethics um, and just sort of briefly explaining what that what they mean and how they're applied? I'd be happy to, but let, let me first start by dividing ethical problems in medical care into two categories. So ethical dilemmas are, are situations where there's an ethical or moral argument for doing something and an ethical or moral reason to not do it. And telling yourself to do the right thing doesn't tell you which way is right because there are arguments in both directions. And that's what ethics committees and ethics consultants deal with. There's another set of ethical problems. I call it unethics, like the uncola, where um, choosing to go one direction um, may be uh, forcefully driven by any number of things, but there's no ethical argument for it. And so to go that route is unethical. 
to have sex with a patient, to financially exploit patients. Well, there's no ethical justification for, for, for that kind of behavior. Hospital ethics committees don't handle that kind of ethical problem. Those are handled by licensing boards, by ethics committees of professional societies, uh, by chiefs of staff, uh, and, and so on. So there, there are some ethical problems that are, that are important. I'm interested in those too, but, but we don't typically deal with those in the hospital ethics committee. So what kinds of principles come into conflict in ethical dilemmas? Each of these principles are ones that we are taught we should automatically follow. They should determine what we do until and unless, as they inevitably do, they come into conflict with one of the other principles. So again, the dilemma is telling yourself to do the right thing doesn't tell you exactly what to do because these principles each may point in a different direction. So the first we usually discuss is autonomy, which normally refers to patient's autonomy. The right of a competent adult patient to choose what kind of treatment uh, they receive, to uh, choose their own doctor, to choose treatment that accords with their personal values and preferences. That comes into conflict most often with the principle of beneficence. Beneficence is the obligation of a healthcare professional to benefit our patients, to get them good outcomes. You know, most of the time, there's not a disagreement. The patient wants what's going to give them the best outcome. We want to provide them what gives them the best outcome. But sometimes what each of us wants uh, diverges. And, and I can come back to, to talking about um, those conflicts in a sec. The third principle is the principle of justice. Uh, I'm sorry, the third principle is non-maleficence. Uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it means we're not supposed to harm patients. That anything we choose to do, any kind of treatment intervention or diagnostic intervention, should promise benefit that exceeds its potential harms. And we should never do anything that only can provide harm, that can't benefit the patient. And that then the fourth principle is the principle of justice. Justice is doing what's fair. Most of the time in medicine that comes down to what's called distributive justice. I only have this many resources. I have more patients perhaps than I have resources to enable me to give treatment to all of them. How should I divide them up, what's, what's the fairest way to do that? Uh, that's come up uh, in the present, in the places where uh, COVID cases uh, were so numerous that the number of ventilators or the number of dialysis machines or the number of beds in an ICU were insufficient for the number of patients who needed critical care. And distributive justice asks the question, if, if we don't have enough, how do we decide who gets treatment and who doesn't? Thank you for that great summary of the main principles of medical ethics and for providing some examples of ethical scenarios where these principles are put into action. Have you seen the way these principles are used change over the years or do we place certain emphasis on different principles now compared to say decades ago when medicine looked a little different? The practice of medicine has changed dramatically from the perspective of these principles uh, compared to 40 and 50 years ago and, and differs from the way medicine is practiced in some other parts of the world where, where it's still similar to the way it used to be practiced here. So before the mid-1970s, medicine was practiced much more paternalistically. Paternalism is when beneficence 
steamrolls over autonomy. I'm the doctor. I know what's best for the patient. Just take the medicine. Don't ask a lot of questions. Uh, a good example of this is the way um, breast cancer surgery was performed back then was a woman would discover a, a lump in her breast. She'd come to the hospital, be taken to the operating room under general anesthesia. A biopsy would be taken while she's unconscious. It would be run down to the pathology lab. The result would be phoned into the operating room. And the surgeon would decide whether she was going to have a simple mastectomy, a radical mastectomy, or perhaps just a lumpectomy. Women weren't consulted as to which kind of procedure they wanted. From where we sit now, um, that was beneficence being too strong and not respecting autonomy. Because the decision about what kind of operation they have is not simply based on the medical facts, but on the patient's values and preferences. And so no, no surgeon would do that now. It would actually be considered malpractice, um, even assault and battery, uh, to uh, operate on a woman without consenting her, um, without having a discussion. So uh, I, I think there are times, however, as the pendulum is swung in the direction of, of autonomy, where, where physicians go too far in honoring autonomy. Autonomy shouldn't always win. There are times when physicians need to stand up for beneficence. Yeah, that seems unimaginable now. Um, and I'm glad things have changed. Uh, how, how did that change take place? Like what sort of catalyzed the sort of shift in values or our understanding of, of those values? So um, there, were, there was a major shift in, in the United States um, on a whole variety of, of issues regarding individual rights. The civil rights movement, the women's movement, uh, there was a patient's rights movement, there was even a psychiatric patient's rights movement. And um, these gathered steam in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, very influential in the 1970s, there was a presidential uh, commission on bioethics that reviewed these, these concerns and published a number of volumes. And this helped promulgate a lot of discussion and um, self-reflection in health provider communities. M much as right now, um, events following George Flood's murder um, and the demonstrations that followed and um, and the recognition, the more widespread recognition of how much racism was institutionalized in this country is leading, among other places, in healthcare for a lot of soul searching about um, how healthcare has been involved implicitly in a racist structure. I think you brought up some really great points, Dr. Levinson. I agree that while we have made great strides to incorporate ethical principles, especially the principle of autonomy and shared decision-making between patient and the healthcare team, there's still a lot more that can be done. The institutionalized racism inherent in medicine is an area that I think, or you know, at least hope, we will try to dismantle and use these ethics principles to help create equity in healthcare. Do you have other examples you'd like to share regarding the use of these principles in day-to-day -day practice? Because often people think about ethics, as I said, in really complex cases or cases involve new technology, they may not, they may not see that ethics is underfoot in their practices every day. So here's an everyday mundane example of where physicians and other primary providers may abdicate their beneficence responsibility and, and give in to autonomy. So in the case of children, the autonomy resides in their parents, at least until the child is an older adolescent. So every day when, when a parent takes their child, young child, to the pediatrician or family physician, with what is clearly an uncomplicated viral infection. And the parent wants 
the physician to prescribe an antibiotic and the physician doesn't want to and the parent pressures the physician whenever the physician gives in they have capitulated their beneficence responsibility they they have violated non-maleficence because antibiotics are of no utility in a simple viral infection and can only do harm and so the proper thing to do there even if it upsets the parent is to say I, I can't ethically or clinically do this. I cannot prescribe this antibiotic. It not only may harm your child, it, it contributes to antibiotic resistance, which harms all of us. That's a really common scenario I think many of us will encounter. You mentioned earlier the importance of autonomy now as we make medical decisions. Do you think physicians now place a higher value on autonomy or one of the four main principles of bioethics compared to others when making these medical decisions? Well, I think, you know, I think it depends on the case. I mean, there are cases where autonomy really isn't at issue or issues where, where it's not, not an issue. What's at issue is a justice question. Uh, for example, um, in the places where COVID uh, peaked to the point where really strained the ability of the healthcare system to deliver care. Um, one of the things that seemed to first run out were CRRT machines, continuous dialysis machines. So one question that, that arises is, is it ethically better to, nor, normally, when CRRT dialysis is provided to a patient, it's provided for a 24-hour run. Is it better to provide full, optimized dialysis to a smaller number of people because you don't have enough machines to give it to everybody who needs it? Or is it better to give each of the patients 12 of the 24 hours and and not dialyze them optimally. And a further question is, should you prioritize the sickest patients or the patients who are most likely to survive if you dialyze them? So those patients are too sick to express their own autonomy, usually their own wishes. There's really not the time to consult their families. and the. And the families are probably going to advocate for their own, their own family member, which doesn't help us with how to decide. We can't really let autonomy resolve that. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, if it's a patient in the ICU where the nurses and physicians are in agreement that the care is simply prolonging the patient's death um, and the family is pushing hard for uh, all aspects of treatment to continue, um, you know, their physicians are and, and, and nurses are, are really trying to advocate for beneficence and non-maleficence. And justice really isn't of much relevance because under normal circumstances, not under COVID condition, crisis conditions, under normal circumstances, we have enough ICU beds. We have enough dialysis machines. We have enough critical care nurses. As a follow-up to that, do you think different medical specialties rely on certain ethics principles more than others? For example, you as a psychiatrist, do you feel you use certain principles more than, say, you know, a surgeon or an internal medicine physician would? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, psychiatrists, um, most psychiatrists have to initiate involuntary psychiatric treatment for um, patients who are highly suicidal, uh, less commonly homicidal, uh, or very, very psychotic, so impaired by their, their illness that we feel they can't think rationally. Uh, that doesn't come up in dermatology very often. Uh, I, there must have been an involuntary dermatology case somewhere, but it, but it just doesn't come up very often. Um, you know, obstetricians deal with some unique problems. Um, the, what benefits the developing fetus versus 
uh, the mother's wishes and how to balance those those things uh, would uh, be pretty much unique to obstetrics. So yes, there's some differences between specialties for sure. Um, distributive justice um, questions um, come up uh, routinely as part of transplant practice because there aren't enough kidneys, livers, or hearts, or lungs uh, to provide transplantation to all the patients who could benefit. And so transplant teams, the transplant community of providers, uh, have to figure out how to decide f most fairly. And there, two of these questions should, should priority be given to the sickest patients or to patients who have the best chance of surviving should uh, age be a consideration? Should citizenship be a consideration? These are these are complex questions. We've had discussions about that, like the sickest versus um, most likely to survive. Like, how do you, how do you balance that? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that dilemma? Oh, uh, with with great difficulty, um, because we also should never overestimate our ability to predict. Um, you know, there are situations which are extreme enough that, that the decision is easy. Patient has widely metastatic cancer and has exhausted all known forms of treatment for that cancer. Um, and it's a choice between, but we're not going to transplant someone like that because their, their odds of, of, of living very long are, are not great. Um, but, um, well, the, after I get on, after I get off this session with you guys, I'm going to evaluate someone for potential liver transplant. Ordinarily, transplant teams take enough time to assess patients that they can, um, get all the appropriate facts. And if a patient needs to make some changes to make them a suitable candidate, we can give them a, we give them direction what they need to do. But there are times when there isn't that time. So this is someone who has alcoholic hepatitis, fulminant alcoholic hepatitis. Ordinarily, if somebody has alcoholic cirrhosis and they're still drinking, the transplant program will tell them, we're not going to transplant you while you're actively drinking because you're going to, you're going to, your, your alcoholism is going to destroy the transplanted organ too. So let us get you into substance abuse treatment. Let's see if you can stop drinking. Let's get you stabilized. With fulminant alcoholic hepatitis, there really is, we can't send this patient to a treatment program and say, come back in four months or six months. So we, we have to make an assessment of how likely is this person, who, she, she's gonna tell me that she's not gonna drink anymore. Um, what, what variables can tell me whether that's likely to be true? Uh, those are not easy questions. So with, um, with, with experience, do you find it, at, at least for yourself, easier to think through these decisions? Is there like a decision tree that you go through in your head or it, that kind of formula just cannot be applied to this kind of thing? No, I, you're, it's like everything else that you do. Um, whether you're, you're baking bread or uh, doing cardiac surgery or providing an ethics consult, the longer you do something, um, you, you, your thinking becomes streamlined and you become more adept and some things become second nature. And, and then you wonder why it isn't so straightforward for everybody else. Well, it's because they, they haven't been wrestling with it. Um, so, so I do need to back up sometimes and take somebody through those steps that are on you know, sort of automatic pilot for me. Um, it can be really hard with a family, particularly when they've not had time to get past their own emotional reactions. So 
a family that's making decisions for a family member who's been declining with a serious chronic illness for the last five years is very different to talk to than a family who, let's say, whose 40-year-old mother of three children who was healthy until two days ago has had a devastating stroke out of the blue. And we're, we're saying she has no reasonable chance of a meaningful recovery, that she might survive, but she won't be able to communicate at all. And they've only had two days to come to terms with, with this devastating event is really hard for families in, in that instance um, to, to let go. And so um, it's not just a matter of, of talking with them rationally about why it doesn't make sense to aggressively keep their family member alive. It's, it's, it's a matter of acknowledging and empathizing and, and uh, understanding that it's going to take them some time to get to the same place that we arrived at logically very quickly. I was wondering, um, to what degree do you think the four pillars of ethical decision-making that we've talked about, to what degree do you think um, they're based in our Western culture? I suppose I'm thinking specifically about autonomy um, and how that could potentially manifest differently in someone of a different background? Yes, uh, great question. So in the Western countries, but particularly in the United States, individual liberty is valued more highly than some other competing values and some other cultures. You see this right now in those in, in, in people who are refusing to wear masks because they think it's some kind of infringement on their individual liberty. I think they're very misguided, but, but that's, a, that's a different matter. So there are cultures and subcultures even within, within the United States <clears throat> that, that don't value individual autonomy to that extent. So in some cultures, the decisions reside within the family. And even a competent adult is supposed to defer to the family as a whole or to the family elders, or even to the elders of their community, not even necessarily a family member. There's some subcultures, mostly in certain religious groups in the United States, <clears throat> which are extremely patriarchal um, and where women who um, are part of those groups may say, uh, it's my duty to do whatever my husband tells me to do. I have a real problem with that. Um, and, um, but if she says, well, Dr. Levinson, my individual autonomy right is to delegate this decision to my husband. Uh, I'm going to have a struggle because um, it is her autonomy right to delegate it, just as outside of a patriarchal kind of religious group. If a patient said, you know, this decision is one that emotionally is just too, too, too overwhelming for me, I, I, I want my partner to make the decision. Or even, doctor, I want you to make the decision. Um, if the patient autonomously wants to transfer the decision to their physician, uh, that's ethically okay. I think the physician probably in such an instance should be um, careful to reflect on whether the answer, <clears throat> the right answer of what to do is pretty clear, uh, <clears throat> and if not, to seek second or third opinions. But Fortunately, we don't have too many patients from patriarchal groups uh, where women want to give up their, their decision-making. That's, that's really interesting because we've talked a little bit about balancing sort of the principles correctly, and, and it sounds like that it, each individual can really have their own sort of balance based on whether it's you know, cultural, religious, or other factors. 
do you think that there's like a theoretical correct balance between the four pillar, the kind of the four principles, um, or is it something that is sort of individual to the to the person? I think every case requires a careful weighing. Um, I don't think there's a sing single right right answer. Um, um, you know, we generally say ties go to autonomy. If 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 it's you know we really are are uncertain, um, but um, but it really depends on the case, and and small differences can tip it one way or the other. So um, there's some cases where our beneficence and non-maleficence obligations extend to the community at large. So um, the example I gave you of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing is one, one kind of situation where as, as physicians we have a responsibility to think about the population at large. Um, allocating scarce resources um, is another example. Um, but Here's another mundane kind of situation. Uh, comes up in my practice doing psychiatric consultations literally every week. And that's, there's an elderly person who's been admitted to the hospital. It's getting close to discharge. The primary team in consultation with physical and occupational therapy feel that it's not safe for the patient to return home. Maybe the patient had been living alone and they want the patient to go to a nursing home. And the patient says, I don't want to go to no goddamn nursing home. Um, I find those very difficult because, as do the teams, because I know nursing homes are not wonderful places, um, but the patient may have been forgetting to pay their bills and their electricity has been turned off. They may be, um, undernourished, um, and, and when to trump their individual liberty and force them in a nursing home isn't easy. It becomes easier for me, however, if um, on more than one occasion they left the stove on and it started fires in their kitchen and in the apartment building. Well, now their cognitive impairment is endangering other people, not just them. And that, that makes me feel ethically much more comfortable with saying you, you, you're just, you just don't have sufficient capacity to function independently. You either have to move in with relatives or, or, or you, we're going to have to find a, a safer place for you. So each, in each case, some fact like that may shift what's the right answer. So, uh, so the last thing I really wanted to ask you about is, like how how could um, how can patients or and listeners you know if they're in this situation how can they advocate for themselves to make sure that their autonomy is valued um, and that the doctor is or and the entire healthcare team the healthcare system is sort of appropriately applying these principles to their care. Great great question. So one of the things that that presidential commission on bioethics wrote a lot about back in the 1970s and early 80s, and that's received a lot of attention ever since, is that from an ethical standpoint, as, as well as a clinical standpoint, the ideal doctor-patient relationship is one that's grounded in shared decision-making. That every decision, and, and really every aspect of healthcare should be co-owned by the provider and the patient. Um, if patients are very passive in their healthcare relationships, if they don't ask questions, if they don't do their own reading, um, then the outcome is, is, is risks being suboptimal and it risks certainly not being respectful of the patient's values. So there are very concrete things patients can do. Um, when a doctor recommends a procedure 
don't be deferential. Ask questions. If the doctor doesn't like being asked questions, get a different doctor. Or at the very least, get a second opinion. Um, if there's a consent form and you don't understand something that's in it, or you don't understand something the doctor said, or you don't remember what the doctor said, and it's very easy, even for highly educated people, to forget, to blank out, especially if it's something that, that's making them very nervous, then don't be shy about asking your doctor. Email them. Um, write down your questions before the visit. Um, another thing that everyone should do and I won't, I won't put the five of you on a spot on the spot and ask you whether you've done this, but I will urge you to do it, is you should have determined who you would want to make healthcare decisions for you if you were unable to make them. And that's called a power of attorney for healthcare. And despite the name power of attorney, it doesn't involve lawyers. There's no expense. It's a simple form. In Virginia, if you don't have that form, the decision's going to be made by your next of kin, prioritized by the way the law lists next of kin. But maybe you're living with a partner to whom you're not married, but that's the person you would want to make the decision. Or maybe you're estranged from the person who would make the decision. You're separated from your married partner. If you're separated but you're not divorced, that separated person is at the head of the list for making healthcare decisions about you. So you will make it easier for physicians and other providers if you've, if you've designated someone and then make sure that person knows what your values are. If you have particular preferences, um, make sure those are communicated well. So let's take Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in accepting um, blood or blood products, even their own blood in autologous transfusion. That's where your own blood is stored in the blood bank and then retransfused into you, let's say, after an operation. But like all religions, members of Jehovah's Witness vary in the extent to which they apply that. So some of them will accept corneal transplants, but not liver transplants, because corneas are largely bloodless. And some are worried that there might be a, a, a few red cells in the cornea um, from that got in there when it was removed and won't. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses advise their members to carry a card in their wallet or purse that says what they would or wouldn't accept. Because after all, if, if Jehovah's Witness is in a terrible car accident and uh, they're in shock and they're brought into the emergency room, <clears throat> if, if they've got something with them that tells us what they will what they want and what they don't, that, then that makes it much easier for us to do the right thing. Um, I think it is extremely helpful if you have a family members in the hospital for as much as possible for another friend or family member to be at the bedside as much as the nurses will allow it. For, for there to be somebody besides the patient who who's listening and recording to what the healthcare providers are saying um, to, to help the patient retain the information, reflect on the information, and make good decisions. Uh, those are the things that come to mind. Thank you. That's, that's really good advice. So as we close up here, we have a few minutes left. Does anybody have any questions? I have one. It's kind of, a, it's kind of the reverse of the question we just asked. But uh, Dr. Levinson, it seems like the the best way that you kind of were talking about how I could summarize it or summarize it is to like break up the power relationship, that dichotomy between patient and doctor and ask questions. Is there a way for, you know, for 
a young medical student to like, as they go through training to like recognize those power relationships and how to like kind of check yourself and, you know, slow down when you're talking to a patient. Do you have any advice on that? So we get, we both get very busy and distracted and we get desensitized. And if, if there were an ethical way to do it, uh, but there's not, I would make, I would arrange, we would arrange for every medical student to have a period of reversible serious illness where you were in the hospital and you experienced what it was like um, to be at the mercy of healthcare professionals. Uh, since we can't do that, you have to strive to be empathic and to not get desensitized. So let's say it's something as simple as <clears throat> you, you're a primary care physician, you're ordering fasting blood sugars and A1Cs on a patient who has a family history of diabetes. And after following them for a number of years, they've crossed that numerical boundary and you tell them they now have diabetes and you want to talk with them about insulin and diet and so on. Um, they may not hear much of what you're saying that visit because they're thinking about the worst possible outcomes either they've read about or they may have seen in their family or seen in other settings. And they're thinking about blindness and amputations and dialysis. And you're thinking, this is somebody who otherwise is healthy and just chemically are diabetic. What's the big deal? Well, to them, it is a really big deal. And, and so um, we all have to kind of pull ourselves back and realize that what is familiar to us is unfamiliar to the patient. What isn't scary to us scares the hell out of them. Um, when I entered medical school, I didn't know the difference between a stroke and a heart attack. I didn't really know what stroke meant. Uh, I was young. I was healthy. Um, well, you, you will have even highly educated patients who don't know the difference between a stroke and a heart attack. So you, you've got you've to keep that in mind and, 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 and think about where the patient's head is at cognitively, emotionally, behaviorally. So Dr. Levinson, uh, one final question. How do you see the future of technology and different technological development, developments in medicine sort of complicating the issue of medical ethics? I, I, I think my answer is going to go to another question, which is, um, what do I think is the biggest ethical problem in, in medical care today? New technologies and new drugs in this country are extremely expensive. And I think the biggest ethical problem we have is the problem of justice. And it's not a problem at the level of individual patients. It's at the level of the healthcare system. We spend more on healthcare than any other country. We're about 35th in the world in terms of healthcare outcomes. We have millions of people who can't access healthcare. Millions more get crappy healthcare. And every one of these new technologies and new drugs that costs a fortune um, raises the question of, you know, should we be spending the money on, on this new intervention? How much benefit does it provide? And are we using the money we now spend on healthcare wisely? Um, the simple answer is we're not using the money wisely. Um, there's widespread agreement on that. The disagreement is in what to do about it. And there's a lot of vested interest groups Physicians don't want their salaries to go down. Hospitals don't want their revenues to be reduced. Insurance companies don't want to go out of business. Um, uh, governments have complex uh, motives. 
including conflicts between different levels of government in, in terms of who's responsible for health care. Employers have their own interests. Um, COVID is um, showing uh, a number of the things that we have not dealt with adequately in our society, and, and it's, it's thrown a spotlight on how unequal medical care is in this country, something we should have been dealing with uh, more explicitly for a long time. Maybe a future session could be devoted just to, um, to that issue alone. We would love to do that sometime. But we really appreciate you joining us. This was really helpful, very interesting, left us a lot to think about. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye, you guys. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of the first Do No Harm podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and even learned a few things about medical ethics. For those of our listeners interested in learning more about organ transplantation and the ethics involved in organ allocation, we are releasing an episode specifically on that topic, so please tune in for episode two next week on Spotify, Apple Music, or check out our website, firstdonoharmpodcast.com. Thank you.